0: Hello and welcome to the rounds table. We're thrilled to be hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto and I'm excited today to be joined by a brand new guest, Rebecca Stovall. She's the chief medical resident at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. Hey Rebecca, how's it going?
1: I'm great, Amol. How are you?
0: doing fabulously okay so rebecca and i are going to be talking about two articles as always today rebecca is going to be talking about simvastatin and multiple sclerosis and then i'm going to be talking about how we speak to patients about risk and then finally we will wrap up with our good stuff segment as always bring you a few short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine so Rebecca, why don't you kick us off and talk to us about uh, simvastatin in multiple sclerosis?
1: Sure, so the paper that I read today um, was about a randomized placebo-controlled phase two trial called the MS-STAT trial by Chataway and his colleagues in The Lancet um, in June of 2014. This was a double-blind randomized controlled trial of simvastatin, 80 milligrams daily versus placebo in patients with secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. The outcomes that they measured were whole brain atrophy over a 24 month period. And what they found was there was a statistically significant decrease in the rate of whole brain atrophy by about 40% per year in patients who took simvastatin eighty milligrams daily compared to those who didn't.
0: So I feel this is another one of these statin mm-hmm. in a weird application trials. Yeah. This is secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. So can you talk to me a little bit about who gets secondary progressive multiple sclerosis and you know how common is it? How big of a problem is this that we're talking
1: about? Sure. So multiple sclerosis most often starts in a relapsing, remitting manner. The mechanism that is thought to cause this is inflammation and an autoimmune process leading to loss of myelin. Eventually though that loss of myelin causes neurons to die. That then leads, we think, to secondary progressive multiple sclerosis. So secondary progressive seems to be the final common pathway after people have had relapsing-remitting MS from many years.
0: And so when we're talking about MS sort of in the popular culture, we're typically talking about, like you said, that relapsing-remitting pattern where people get attacks of MS and then it goes away and they're better. But a large proportion of those patients, the majority of those patients, end up progressing to this secondary progressive MS. And that's the group we're talking about, Absolutely. Right? And so why would this... I mean, other than the fact that statins are apparently good for everything until we actually study them, (laughs) and then they're not that great for everything, why would statins be beneficial in secondary progressive MS?
1: So people talk about statins and.
0: Oh, and I challenge you to use this explanation or to give me this explanation (laughs) without using the word pleiotropic (laughs) effects. That was the first word
1: that was going to come out of my mouth. (laughs) Okay. so statins have lots of different effects. Um, you might call them pleotrophic. <laughs> and, you know, one of the sort of main things that, that they do other than lower cholesterol is they can modulate the immune system in various ways, including impacting T cell function itself. They also have cellular protective properties, and they might even improve cerebrovascular blood flow, um, so getting more blood to the brain.
0: Okay. So a lot of uh, potential mechanisms, yep. probably not super well understood. So uh, who did they choose to study? Who is this patient population?
1: So they, they took patients with secondary progressive MS who were between the ages of 18 and 65 years old and scored on the expanded disability status scale or EDSS between 4 to 6.5. And what that means is that they had significant disability, but were still able to to mobilize independently at times, although up to requiring two walking aids.
0: Okay, so fairly moderate disease, moderate to severe disease it sounds like, and they then randomized them to a high dose of simvastatin, like 80 milligrams, and placebo, right? Yep. Um, Tell me about this whole brain atrophy. What is that and what does it mean?
1: Sure, so whole brain atrophy was their primary outcome. And what they were doing was looking to see if the patients had any decline in the rate that their brains atrophied by being on simvastatin. The reason they chose that outcome is that given the likely mechanism of secondary progressive MS being neurodegeneration, the likely structure function correlation is that as people with greater disability progress their brains sort of shrink
0: in their skull. Brain atrophy being the surrogate outcome. So so is there a relationship between whole brain atrophy and clinical outcomes?
1: Well, longitudinal studies have shown that there is that relationship and that more atrophy leads to or is associated with more disability. But of course, it, it is just an imaging finding.
0: Right. Okay. And talk to me about how many patients they uh, studied and you know how long did they treat them for? When did they measure the outcome? And what was the difference that they found? found?
1: Sure. There were uh, 70 uh, patients in each of the placebo and uh, simvastatin groups, and they had MRIs at time zero, as well as at 12 months and 25 months. So the main finding was that the atrophy rate was about 0.3% per year in the simvastatin group, compared to 0.6% per year in the placebo group, and this represented about a 40% relative decrease in atrophy rate per year. And this was found when they analyzed the data at 12 months and also at 25 months.
0: Okay, I mean that sounds promising. I have no idea how to relate atrophy to clinical outcomes, did they talk at all about clinical outcomes? Actually,
1: so the EDSS, that expanded disability score that we talked about earlier, showed a statistically significant difference in favor of the simvastatin group. As well as one of the other scales that they used, the physical subscale showed quite an important difference uh, between the two groups with benefit toward the symphostatin group.
0: Okay, so that's encouraging.
1: It is encouraging.
0: So all of this sounds really (laughs) promising. Um and so where do we go from here?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, I think we have to be very cautious about these results. If experience teaches us anything about the statin story is that over the last few months Every disease seemed to have been cured by statins, but then these aren't borne out in the large um, RCTs. Um, so I think that we have to be cautiously optimistic, but certainly there were no uh, differences in adverse effects between the two groups. Um, and the primary endpoint, as well as these clinical secondary endpoints, seem to be quite encouraging. So a larger phase three trial is, is something that I, I hope gets done.
0: Yeah, so like any uh, prudent scientist or clinician, you're pretty reserved in your take on this. (laughs) I have to say that it's a little bit different from... So we spoke a little bit in a previous uh, podcast about statins in COPD and there were statins in sepsis trials. And you're right, they were negative trials. uh, But the interesting thing about those trials is that the rationale for the initial study was from a previous observational study which showed an association between statin use, whereas this is already a randomized trial, even though it's small, um, and it seems to be showing a potential benefit. So I think it's probably, to my mind, a little bit more plausible to get excited about this study than the previous ones, and uh, I don't know. I'm actually I'm actually quite bullish on this one. I'm a little <laughs> optimistic.
1: I'm really hopeful too. You know, there's nothing to treat secondary progressive MS with right now. Right. Um, all the medications that are out there for MS. Really uh, try to lengthen time between relapses and ha- really have nothing to do with this Persistent progression that happens in secondary progressive and so this would help a lot of people.
0: Yeah, that's right It's a really debilitating disease and it's also a, a, a Condition in which there's a real need for hope. Yeah as we've seen with uh, some of the other the
1: Zamboni procedure Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know th- MS impacts young people and then they live with this disease for 30 or 40 or 50 years. Um, and so I think that you're absolutely right. Hope is something that really needs to come into play.
0: All right, why don't you wrap up and tell us what are the major takeaway points from this study?
1: Sure, so secondary progressive MS is the final phase of this important neurological problem and you know accounts for most of the disability that people have because of this disease. And we don't have any good treatments for it at this time, but high-dose statins might be able to slow the rate of progression and maybe the rate of disability um, in people with secondary progressive MS. But we need to study this more before we can make any firm conclusion.
0: Perfect. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks. Let's change gears a little bit and talk about how we talk to patients. Sure. So... I wanted to talk about a study that was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine by Zipkin and her colleagues, which was a systematic review of evidence-based risk communication. So this study summarized our best available evidence on how to speak with patients about risk. Now, one of the big challenges is how do you actually communicate these complicated probabilities uh, to patients, especially when statistical literacy is a problem, I would say, even among clinicians. I mean, it's it's hard enough for us to figure out sensitivity and specificity and, you know, absolute risk versus relative risk and number needed to treat. And, like, all of these things take years for us to learn and master. And, and so, you know, trying to understand how do, we, how do we talk to our patients about these things is really important. So this study was a systematic review, and they looked at cross-sectional or prospective studies that compared two or more methods of presenting probabilistic information. And they found 91 studies that addressed various aspects of this issue, and they came to a number of different conclusions. So why don't we just go through it topic by topic and see uh, what they found. Okay. So if you had to guess, about the use of visual displays. Would you say that they're helpful or unhelpful in talking to patients about risk? The
1: visual displays, I think they're probably going to be helpful.
0: Yeah, probably. It depends on who constructs the the, the display. <laughs> yeah, I if guess. I drew
1: it, it would be not so good. Yeah, yeah.
0: The authors found that, first of all, visual displays do improve patients' understanding and comprehension of probabilities. So, that's the first thing. Simpler is better. So mm-hmm. having two items on one graph instead of four items on one graph is better. Um, and having two separate graphs to talk about things. That makes sense. Okay, So let's move on to the next one, which is um, talking about absolute figures versus relative figures. So, for example, in your paper about MS, we talked about how there was a, what was it? It was like a 0.2% uh, absolute difference yeah. and a 40% relative
1: difference. Mm-hmm.
0: So what's your intuition on this one?
1: So I think that the numbers usually look better when you talk about relative, and so that's probably why we use those terms a lot. But absolute actually, I think, conveys more information.
0: Yeah, so when you say better, you mean more impressive. Yes. And I think that that's correct. So uh, uh, the evidence agrees with you. So the the first and most important thing is that whenever presenting these figures, we should present baseline. So we shouldn't just say Mm -hmm. this reduces your risk by 40%. We should say that your risk is, you know, your risk of having a stroke this year is 8% and taking you know, uh, warfarin would reduce your risk by 50%. Okay, So that's an example of relative risk Uh, versus absolute would be your risk of having a stroke is 8%, taking warfarin would make it 4%. Mm -hmm. So the studies show first you should present baseline data And then second, you should use absolute figures because they tend to be easier to understand.
1: Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. In that example that you just gave, I would normally interpret the relative risk reduction in absolute numbers for my patients anyway, I think.
0: Yeah. And I think the caveat or the interesting finding around that is telling people with relative risk actually encourages them to be more likely to change their behavior. Really? So relative risk like you say, because it's more impressive it tends to lead to an overestimation in people's minds of risk differences and it it tends to change behavior more effectively. So if you wanted to be motivational (laughs) in encouraging someone to adopt healthy behavior, for example smoking cessation or something like that you might be more cognizant of using relative this all gets a little tricky yeah being
1: being a bit of a trickster yeah
0: Yeah. i mean manipulate you don't want to be a manipulative clinician at the same time so but it's important for clinicians to know absolute risk is clearer and easier to understand always present baseline risks if possible and relative risk can maybe motivate behavior more effectively. Okay. Okay, what about the use of qualitative descriptors? So, your patient asks you, "Doctor, what is the likelihood of me having a complication from this paracentesis procedure that you're about to perform on me?" Do you respond with numbers <laughs> or with qualitative descriptors?
1: Do I respond?
0: Yeah, let's yeah. we'll start with you and sure. then we'll start with me, who's <laughs> probably more representative of the Let's remember Rebecca's the chief Oh, no, don't resident. say those
1: things. Okay. So, I probably would say there is a very small chance of bleeding, infection, those kinds of things.
0: Right. And I think that that's true of the vast majority of clinicians. And the only reason I would at all know this is having recently looked at some of the paracentesis literature, so I may or may not have cherry picked this example. Um, but the you know combined rates of complications is something like one in a thousand before ultrasound guidance. So now knowing this information, i be I might be more likely to give people actual figures. But I think this is an important point. So we as clinicians, I think, typically use qualitative descriptors, mm-hmm. and there are various arguments people say for doing this. They say that one, you know, tailoring individual risk to the patient is so different and you know, sometimes presenting numbers to people is confusing and so it's better for the you know clinician who is the trusted advocate of these patients to just reassure people and say the risks are very low. The evidence doesn't really bear that out. Mm-hmm. So apparently if risks are presented with qualitative descriptors alone, it's uh, less satisfying for patients. It's less helpful for their understanding of risk and it's not that effective in modifying behaviors. So,
1: but do you think that using actual percentages when you're not 100% sure, really... Would you
0: say 100% sure, mm-hmm. moderately sure? Yeah, that's right. Very sure, moderately sure, sure. Well, exactly. Sure. I mean,
1: that's that's the point, right? So we might have studies that say, you know, the risk of paracentesis is, you know, right. one in a thousand. Right. But is that accurate? Is that going to be accurate for everyone?
0: Sure. Well, I guess that's the argument, um, is that it's hard to find statistics that are relevant to the individual decision. So the first issue is about feasibility. So it's just not feasible for a clinician, especially a generalist. So let's say you are hyper specialized and maybe this is part of the reason why specialty care people tend to be a little bit more satisfied is Mm. it's easier for them to have mastery over a smaller body of knowledge and be able to say, you know, the absolute risk of this is blank because I see it every single day in my practice. It's harder as a generalist to have all those numbers in your brain and I think that that probably was previously a legitimate reason to not always present patients with real figures but I think increasingly with you know the whole world literally at my fingertips I feel like that is an inadequate excuse to not give people numerical information if we know and it seems like we do know that increasingly that helps people make more informed decisions and they prefer it Mm. um interesting I mean, I, I, this actually has changed my practice, I yeah. think, which is that I will take out my smartphone when I'm at the bedside and actually look up things for patients. And so that means that clinicians have to have a whole other set of skills, which is that they have to have nowhere to go to access that information reliably and quickly.
1: Hopefully though, that's, you know, a skill set that we all are at least developing, you know?
0: Yeah. Developing, I think is the important word there. Cause I like, I don't know, we're sort of the technology generation and I still don't I'm not totally you know, at ease with figuring out where to find reliable information. So, and then the last point to talk about is this issue of the number needed to treat. So this is a very helpful, I think, clinical statistic.
1: I love number needed to treat.
0: Clinicians love number needed to treat. So for the non-clinicians out there, the, this figure is a statistical measure derived from absolute risk reductions. And it's basically saying, um, how many patients do I need to treat in order to save one life or, you know, reduce one myocardial infarction or whatever, right? So whatever your outcome of interest is. So it's how many patients you need to treat in order to achieve one unit reduction. And it's very useful for clinicians, I think, because we think about this all the time because we're constantly treating people and we're wondering how many people are we actually helping. Mm -hmm. It turns out it is not helpful to patients. Okay. Yeah. The evidence suggests that it confuses patients and does not help them make decisions.
1: I wonder if it's because they are one person and it's hard for them to think about themselves as a group.
0: Yeah. Well, so there's some theories about why this is. First of all, we should probably make a point of disclosure, which (laughs) is that the number needed to treat was first described by Andreas Lopakis, who happens to be the executive producer of uh, the rounds table, one of the executive producers. So I'm not sure if this bringing up this controversial point about his idea is going to result in a dramatic reduction in support (laughs) for our little endeavor here. I'm sure it won't, um, because he is of generous spirit. Um, But the point is that this is a very useful tool for clinicians. Why is it not useful for patients? So there have been some hypotheses. So the first is that it's not familiar or intuitive for patients as opposed to clinicians when compared to absolute or relative risk. So that's the comparison. So the studies looked at comparing number needed to treat versus presenting information using absolute risk reduction or relative risk reduction. Absolute risk reduction is a very simple process. It's a subtraction. Like, this is my risk if I don't do this thing. This is my risk if I do this thing. 8% to 4%. It's simple, right? Mm -hmm. Easy and many people can do it. Relative risk reduction is familiar. My risk is reduced by 50%. H&M has a 50% sale at, so it's a familiar process, cognitive Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Number needed to treat requires some statistical hoops to jump through, and therefore it's not necessarily familiar or so easy.
1: Well, and I guess if you know that absolute risk reduction is something that patients understand and like, why do the added math anyway for them to get to the number needed to
0: treat. Absolutely. I agree with you. And especially like what you said, that's the, the idea of treating a population and understanding how many people in that population will benefit is so intuitive to clinicians, mm-hmm. but much less relevant to the individual patient's experience. Yeah. Okay. So here's my key points. First is that how we express risk to patients is centrally important, obviously. The effect that this has on patients' real decisions is not entirely clear. And finally, our best evidence suggests the following. One, use visual aids where possible. Two, use absolute figures, not relative figures. Three, avoid the number needed to treat when speaking with patients. And four, avoid qualitative descriptors alone when speaking to patients.
1: I will change what I'm doing.
0: (laughs) I will do my best to change what I'm doing. I, <laughs> I, I won't go so far as to promise. So why don't we move on to our Good Stuff segment. Sure. So tell me what's good in your world this week, Rebecca.
1: So what's good in my world is an article in Mag by Melissa Dahl about how to get through a workday on no sleep. Um, and I thought this was relevant to our lives. She goes through... Um, some of the research that has gone on um, in sleep deprivation and how caffeine might impact um, our cognitive processes and gives you a step-by-step guide on how to stay awake.
0: Not bad. Yeah. What are the major points?
1: Make sure you eat. Make sure you take some caffeine at small doses throughout you know, the time period that you need to be awake. Not that one giant cup of coffee to sort of shock your system. Try and go outside a little bit, get some fresh air and some sunlight. Do the things that are hard first so that, you know, as the time progresses, your brain can kind of... Slumber a bit,
0: slowly devolve into that's mush. Right. Okay.
1: Um, and a twenty-minute nap, if you can do it, interesting, is is gonna work wonders.
0: Great, yeah. thank you. All right, my good stuff is, as is sort of frequently the case with me, not always the like happiest thing. So, Rebecca, have you heard of a toxic bloom?
1: I have heard of a toxic. bloom. Oh, amazing,
0: bloom. wonderful. Yes. Um. So that's my sort of, I guess it's ungood stuff segment. So in. Ohio, Toledo, Ohio, this summer, there has been a alert about the drinking water, mm. which is their fresh water, which comes from Lake Erie, has been infested by this algae, which releases a liver toxin. And there is like a, a range of these toxins. This one is called microcystin. And basically, people are not allowed to drink the water because of the overgrowth of this algae or a toxic bloom of the algae. It turns out that this is a fairly important public health problem, having been prevalent in various countries around the world, China, Australia, uh, North America. And interestingly, it's largely, they think, from phosphorus runoff from fertilizer into the lake. So I think interesting and important, potentially, uh, I think they're trying to figure out why and what to do about it. Um, But So if you have a patient who's been in... Ohio or the region and comes back with a gastrointestinal illness, consider checking their liver function because they may have ingested water with liver toxin in it. And if you're in that area, don't drink the water. Okay. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <I> won't. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rebecca. It was a pleasure to have you on. It was fun. Thanks. Let's do it again sometime. I hope you'll have me.